0: the following podcast contains explicit language.
1: This is Matthew Libatique, ASC, and you are listening to The Cinematography Podcast.
0: You're listening to The Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts... Ben Rock, and Ilya Friedman.
2: Hello and welcome to episode 33 of the Cinematography Podcast. 33. Holy crap. I did it. You we did, did it. We, we did our thing. We did our, our, our bit that we always our do. Bit.
3: Hey, uh, Ben, you've been looking forward to this episode for a long time.
2: I, not only have I been looking forward to this episode for a long time, but I'm outrageously jealous that you got to interview Maddie Batique.
3: You look jealous right now. I'm filled. Um, I'm, 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 I sense daggers flying at me though, I'm through green. the air. I'm yes. literally
2: green. I'm like Kermit the Frog green with envy. I, Matty Lee Boutique is just one of my all-time favorites.
3: Well, uh, he does have an incredible filmography. He's nominated for an Oscar this year, his second uh, Academy Award nomination after uh, Black Swan, and this time, of course, for
2: A Star is Born.
3: That's right. And uh, he had a, he had a really good year. He had a couple other movies. He had a little movie, you know, Venom, tiny, <laughs> a, tiny, tiny, little t- nothing tiny, little, tiny little movie. So and then, of course, uh, we talk about everything is illuminated, which to me, like he was already doing. He was already just just killing it. And it came to an even e- even higher. That, level that was like level
2: the gap. movie where he got he got your attention. The cinematography specifically grabbed your oh, attention.
3: Yeah. And it's just it's just gorgeous. And uh, we get to, we talk about that here in the interview. So uh, without further ado. Matthew Libetique
0: The Cinematography Podcast Interview
3: Maddie Libetique, thank you so much for coming on the Cinematography Podcast
1: Much appreciated It's nice to be here finally
3: Hey, uh, we're in Camera Homage, we're out in, uh, in Poland right now uh, How do you like it so far?
1: It's, uh, it's a familiar place for me <laughs> But I, uh, you know it's just energizing to be here to be quite honest. I mean, I just ran to Seamus McGarvey outside and uh, Benoit Delhomme on the way out of the airport. So, you know, where else can you be when you run into uh, not only um, contemporaries, but legends, you know?
3: It, it, it's uh, almost nowhere. It's, it's, I agree. It's really amazing. This idea. is the most
1: special place for a cinematographer there is. And it's the highest honor beyond anything else to be here and screen here. So I'm, I'm really excited. Yeah, you're absolutely 100 percent correct,
3: and uh, hey, you're having a pretty good time right now. You got two movies out. You got uh, Venom and A Star Is Born, and in fact, didn't they both debut on the same day?
1: Yeah, well, you know, um, I. <laughs> it's funny people keep talking about that, but it's you know, it's really just a coincidence. Uh, but it was exciting, you know. Um, having two films at the same time and having two films do well at the box office. I'm not a real box office person, I don't pay attention to it because um, all I care about is if uh, people see the film, the money and the number doesn't really um, mean anything to me because it doesn't actually mean anything to me, (laughs) you know what I mean? Uh, But I'm happy for all the people involved that are that it means something to. But um, it was cool because you get, uh, when you make a film, especially these two, they're fairly commercial movies, uh, or very commercial movies that uh, you, that's, when you when your family starts to text and email you you know you're reaching a wider audience so that's pretty fucking cool
3: uh, okay so I, I got a question for you that comes from uh, the usual host of this show who's a big fan his name's Ben Rock and Ben has I'm not exaggerating like a nine foot poster maybe it's 8 foot poster of pie on his uh, right on. on his kitchen on <laughs> his kitchen wall he he loves that movie and he very specifically wanted me to ask you <clears throat> so i'm going to get this out of the way i'm going to do it first and then we can go get into my questions but he wanted to know how working on independence and you had some very humble beginnings with a lot of uh, early movies but uh, you also continue to do some smaller movies even after you start doing bigger stuff. And how does the budget and the limitations inform one, you know, independent film versus studio film, and vice versa? What uh, what begets the other?
1: As I've gone on and done bigger budgets and more complicated films, what I've realized is that um, those some of those skills translate to being more efficient on the smaller ones. You know, when I first began, I was like, uh, you know. When you first begin, the movie is $30,000 like it was on Pi. It might as well be $30 million because I hear make somebody's paying to make a movie, you know. And the excitement is there. The same kind of uh, drive is there that you would have if you're making a $20 million movie. So I look back and I, I do I do remind myself of um, Pi specifically because I have this vivid memory of sitting in the back of a um, cargo van with all my gear. Drinking and holding a little cup of coffee and wishing I was somewhere else, and uh, like I'd never forget that if I'm on the set of Iron Man, I would remind myself that was who I was and that is who I am. And when I'm on the set of Venom, it's the same thing, or a star is born, or you know, I just have to remind myself. And I like, I I never ever 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 wanted to forget that uh, that was a core of who I what I loved about cinematography. I mean, I was a when I started, I, I worked with Ed Lockman, who is a probably my greatest influence in uh, a legend. My yeah. craft, yeah. You know, he's always had that spirit about him, and I uh, I sort of patterned the cadence of my career after him because I want to maintain the um, There's an energy in independent film that doesn't exist in uh, bigger budget films. That if you lose that, I think I might as well just quit. Hmm. Yeah yeah uh, uh. but um, going back to your question but the sword, what informs yeah. me yeah. is actually the the fact that I could I could see how things are done in an efficient manner with money and then figure out how we could do it on a smaller budget so like as I've gone on, I've actually been better at the smaller movie than I used to be when I was younger mm-hmm. because I just didn't have that frame of reference. Well, you got
3: a, you got a few more miles under your belt now,
1: too. So I got uh, way too many miles. Now. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
3: OK, so, God, there, there's there's so many different places to go. I got a lot of stuff I want to talk about, so I'm just going to dive right in. Um, you work a lot with Spike Lee. Uh, you've done a lot of you've done a lot of cool stuff with Spike Lee. Inside Man, I thought was Fantastic and looked fantastic. Uh, uh, I I don't know. It seems like that's a polarizing movie. I talked to other people, but I, I I love that movie. Tell me about, um, and yeah, I'll use this as a jumping off point so we don't have to to uh, dwell just on, on working with Spike, but you work with a lot of auteurs. You work with Headstrong... Big personality directors, you know. Uh, Tell me about what it's like getting into the the mind of the director. I mean, Darren Aronofsky, John Favreau, Spike Lee. These are all um, people with really, you know, distinct visions. How how do you approach that? How do you how do you get into that?
1: Well, I feel very fortunate, first of all, to work with people who are auteur uh, driven um, or auteur. I don't know what the term is, but
3: that's the term yeah
1: but they're they're, they they have a specific vision I mean at the end of the day we're only as successful as cinematographers by virtue of uh, the vision of a director if I have an idea it has to go through that person and uh, has to be championed by that person or has to be uh, you know uh, remade with that person so uh, it's I feel very fortunate but it I have to say, it's like, it makes it your job easier. If you care about the craft, like 99% of our cinematographers do, you want to strive to make the, you know, the most um, impactful visual possible. So when you work with a director that's helping you already because they have a vision, then all all of a sudden it's magic. And you can only succeed from there because... You know, you're dealing with somebody who already has a vision, and then all you're doing is adding that, uh, that visual articulation to it. But like, at least you're getting the idea, the frame, the language of the movie, the way the film's going to be shot, the way they see it. So it's hard, you know, it's interesting. And, and, and something that I think young cinematographers have to be conscious of is, you know, you have to listen so much to a director when you don't, you haven't worked with them before. Listen, listen, and just like really tune your ears towards what they're saying so that you could actually interpret it the right way and that uh, will lead to less conflict on the set and frustration, which is always uh, happens anyway. But then, you know, uh, the less frustration that happens with the director, the better. You, you want to understand what they're trying to do. And then, you know, I always remember uh, what Owen Roysman says in Visions of Light. He says, uh, you know, I'm a cinematographer. I should be able to do whatever you want me to do. And when you look at his career, he's also a very big influence on me is, uh, you know, you look at the Exorcist in French Connection and um, you, you know, this guy could do anything, you know? And I've always uh, tried to do that myself because it is our job. And um, John is completely different than Spike and Spike is completely different than Darren. And if I, if I had uh, my aesthetic imposed everywhere, then, you know, it, it wouldn't work. You know, I have to kind of work my uh, skill set towards the person I'm working with. I think
3: that you answered that the best way you possibly could and very diplomatic, too, to all to all those those people. So, well, they're all different.
1: I mean, I love them. All, all three of them. I, they're they're fantastic. And they, they, they bring out, you know, and then my recent film uh, Stars Born, I'm working with a, a director, Bradley Cooper, who. You know, you know, everybody's like, he's a first-time director, but he's actually, he's not a first-time filmmaker. I mean, he's an actor. He's, he's been number one on the call sheet how many times? And he's worked with legends like David O. Russell and Clint Eastwood. He, he has a vision, and he's intelligent. I think um, the only thing that sets one filmmaker apart from the other is, uh, uh, is their intellect and their taste, <laughs> you know? Um, and uh, at the end of the day, they, everybody just gets better. And I just had to listen to him. And when you watch the movie, it's my interpretation and his interpretation of the story, but it's also me interpreting what he said and what he's looking for. And I, you know, I like to think that every time I shoot a film, it's it's my interpretation, or at least the visual interpretation of what the director wants.
3: That's a a perfect segue into a question that came in actually via Facebook from one of our listeners. His name is Marcus Taplin. Marcus wanted to find out what it's like, uh, how how does it change your process working with a director who is also number one on the call sheet? He's the lead, he's the lead in the movie. So I I know that it just happened with, with Bradley Cooper and the star is born. So I, I'm 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 guessing your role might change a little, or you might have more responsibility, or is what 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 how, what what's changing with uh, the director being in front of the camera?
1: Well, you 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 have to be uh, attuned to the performances a little more and help them. Like I, you know, you know, one of our jobs is to assist the director's vision, obviously, when we articulate it, but it's it goes far and beyond that. I mean. And in this case, I had worked with actors that turned director, you know, John Favreau, uh, Liev Schreiber as well, and uh, Matthew Kasovitz and Spike Lee, and you know, the list goes on with uh, actors that turned director, but never really one that was on screen almost, you know, the entire time. And um, it, it just took a little extra, and I knew it. You know, it's being aware of the, your situation and then being able to deal with it. So I knew that that would be, I knew it was my first time in this situation going into it. And I literally would ask him, like, what do you want me to be responsible for beyond what I do? And, you know, he asked me once, he said, just let me know if I fall out of my voice. You know, he specifically asked me to listen to his voice when we were watching takes. And, uh, and I would do that. And then I would just uh, naturally look at the performances. And when he comes, how was that? it wasn't necessarily about camera all the time. It was maybe tone. Because he would uh, emotionally, like, I try to understand, I would try to understand the tone and what a director... I always do this. I always try to understand what the scene is about through the director's eyes because if the camera's not uh, actually uh, conveying it, then I bring up the question, like, well, this is about this and maybe we're not getting this or maybe... And, I, I, you know, it's not my place to discuss performance because I'm not the director but uh, in this personal case in this specific case I would actually you know say you know she seemed this or she seemed that or you seemed this or you seemed that just as a note because he wasn't at the monitors and he didn't watch playback rarely did Bradley watch playback so he because he has such an understanding of where the camera is when he's an actor he knows he knows it's in the right place or not which is astounding to me like this is a guy who is acting also evaluating the performance in front of him and he's also peripherally seeing where the camera is so like if he's going to wear multiple hats I could wear multiple hats and uh, that was the spirit of the film uh, uh, across the board for even the sound mixer uh, the sound mixer myself the costumes everybody was like wearing multiple hats because we're all trying to protect him uh, or at least support him, not protect him. But it was a, it was just a, it was a good experience that way. But it, when you work with somebody who's in the film, I think you have to pay special attention to, um, you know, the film on that level, and not just the shots. Like you know, when I normally do a film and I'm operating, or if I'm not operating, I'm watching the visuals and making sure all the beats are handled on my end but also narratively, but like, this was a different level and this was a different level for me. Like emotionally it had to be a different level.
3: You mentioned, uh, Liev Schreiber and, uh, everything is illuminated. I love that movie. I, I, I love that. that, movie that too. That's a, that's a fantastic movie. It also, it, the, the fields of sunflowers. It's like iconic to me. It's like that. that what, every time I think of that movie, that immediately those shots, those <laughs> shots come back to me. It's 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 really fantastic stuff. Take a take a minute or two. Tell me a little bit what that process was like. Uh, did you guys travel to uh, to Russia to shoot that? Did you where did you guys was that? Local? We actually did,
1: shot that film in Prague, in, Prague. Uh, oh, okay. uh, in and outside of Prague, mostly outside of Prague so uh what you was know, the shoot like was it a
3: was it a quick indie sort of you know really tight schedule trying to pack a bunch in or did it have did you have a little bit of breathing room what was what was that like
1: you know in both cases it's funny that you say that it's like Liev and Bradley both um because they're actors and um they don't have that directorial anxiety of time <laughs> you know I think they're aware of it, but uh you realize that actors don't really uh feel the anxiety of time you know like I'd like another one even though you're maybe you're you know three hours late and you're probably gonna lose a scene that day I'd like another one. Oh sure well, yeah, yeah of course you're going have another one so I think that they both um which is a refreshing thing because if you alleviate that anxiety of time you can still be creative on the second half of the day and not just the first because you're doing the right thing um, and Liev had that same quality where he was didn't have that anxiety of time. So, but it did have an independent spirit. The film and uh, you know the sunflowers were an interesting thing because um, you know sunflowers respond and they face the sun. And of course, the cinematographer, the wide shot, the big boom up, you know, the crane shot, like the one of very few crane shots that we were able to have because of the budget. Uh, I wanted to be backlit, so I had scheduled it at a certain time of day, and then I had learned that well, sunflowers only face the sun. So I had to sort of, um, I mean, I didn't know it. You know, I wasn't studying them. I just was told that by, um, I think it was a Greensman or something. I ended up having to shoot that at a time of day that I wouldn't normally shoot it because I wanted, you know, the, the light to be uh, backlit. I had to shoot it at a kind of high noon or, you know, I just had to have the sunflowers facing the camera. I'm like, fuck, man. I—I I, I had no idea. And, uh, that was an interesting thing. It was like, you know what, uh, nature rules, you know what I mean? Like we could cheat, uh, all we want for the perfect light, but you know, nature rules. And I was, uh, it was a big learning experience for me. And like, okay, I guess we're going to shoot this thing front lit.
3: <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's tough to say, Hey, uh, son, uh, just, uh, over yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll have to, you know, gotta, gotta make it happen. Uh, okay. So, um, Ruben Fleischer. I've known Ruben a long time. You just did Venom. Venom with with Ruben. He's got a a tremendous career. I remember him when he was just starting out, making like stop motion music videos, and he was a rental client of mine way back, way back when. But I know you're doing another giant superhero movie right now. You're doing a you're doing something for the DC universe. Yeah. And Venom, I th- I'm sure must have been a, a gigantic a gigantic budget too, probably even bigger than the Iron Man movies that, that you've done. No. So. No, oh, really? it really wasn't. Okay, I had no idea. It was, just, it was an assumption. Uh, does the new DC movie, does that, the, is, it, is it Birds of Prey? Is that what it's called? Birds of Prey. Uh, is is that a an all-time budget reacher for you now? I know they, they, these superhero movies keep trying to outdo each other. The budgets keep going up. What's uh, it, Can you not even talk about the budget? I, I can't um, really talk
1: about the budget. I don't okay. even know what the budget is. Oh, okay. Um, to me it's just it's another it's another job oh it's another film i mean i don't i try not to take a film because it's a job really i never really wanted a real job so (laughs) um and hence here i am but uh it's just uh, you know every film is custom made and um that film will be custom made and it's a completely different i can tell you this it's a completely different experience in venom and um and it's a completely different experience than Iron Man and um, who knows if it's going to be better or worse than either one until we go but I mean Venom and Ruben I mean that was a it was an experience it was like I it was a time I I wanted to work I had worked with Ruben on commercials before and we met on uh, Gangster Squad and um, I really liked him and his energy and his youthfulness and when he came to me for Venom, he said one thing that was magical. He said, "I wanted to feel like a John Carpenter movie." Mm-hmm. Done. I'm in. Yeah. You yeah. Know? And uh, I just was I was taken by it. Uh, that concept of like this the, that kind of film like is is missing. I think because who knows? You know, when when John Carpenter was making, say, uh, the thing, that was a serious undertaking, right? But as it's gone on in time because technology has superseded some of the things, there's a certain aesthetic to it that, like... Uh, and I don't want to disparage it at all as a B-movie, but there's a certain aesthetic to the thing that I think you can't is charming it. as fuck. Oh, no,
3: it's awesome. I think it yeah, holds up really well. It
1: does hold up. It holds up amazing. And, um, and the tension holds up and it's masterful filmmaking. And I just... When Ruben mentioned John Carpenter, I was, like, completely motivated to make this film. Plus, Tom Hardy is an absolute genius. So how could I not be there for that? You know, it was like same as being there for Lady Gaga and watching her sing. It was like watching Tom Hardy being possessed by a symbiote. I mean, come on, man. I mean, to me, I'm like, I can geek out just like anybody else. And I was there. Uh, fantastic. Okay. So uh,
3: I'm going to bring up something here that I don't think most people know about you, but I happen to know, cause I've been present now uh, a couple of times. Uh, in addition to being a, cinematographer, filmmaker, and you know, man about town. You've also
1: hosted some awards shows. Well I've only hosted the ASC awards. That's
3: what I'm talking about though. You've hosted the ASC awards. I right. you did you did a really great job with that too. I appreciate so, that. So, hey,
1: uh, what what yeah you know,
3: Tell tell me about hosting the ASC awards just because it's like, you know, it's it's sort of an ins, it's an insidery re, really little thing, but you know, uh it's not that little. There's a thousand plus people in that room and you get to hang out with Angelina Jolie and you get to go up and present awards and do all this stuff. Tell tell me about uh, hosting the hosting this, you know, sort of insidery thing amongst all your friends.
1: It's you like, know, it started I I had to um um years ago before I hosted the awards. The year before I hosted the awards, I was um Harrison Ford was getting an award, uh, like a, a lifetime achievement award, and I had just worked with Harrison Ford on uh, Cowboys and Aliens. We really hit it off, and he said, "I'll accept the award if Maddie presents it to me." And I was like, "I was, it was talk about a high honor." So I um, I put together a little bit of a um, whatever speech or a presentation, and you know, I went up and did it, and people seemed to respond to it, and you know. They asked me the very following year if I would host the thing, and I didn't. I didn't necessarily want to. It wasn't a goal of mine to do that. But I, I, I was like, okay. Yeah, sure. And I, you know, the, the 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 fact of the matter is, I actually wanted to. I didn't mind exercising different muscles. And the one thing I told myself, and I told this to Chivo last year because we uh, presented best cinematography last year together. I said to Chivo, I said, you know what? Everybody in this room, we know. We know everybody in this room, or they know us. So that's what I told myself the first year is that I know everybody in this room. And I'd look, I'd look down at the first row. I see Bob Harvey, you know, and I'd look over there and I'd see uh, Owen Roysman, I'd look over there. You know, I would see people I knew. And it would remind me that this is cool. Like, we're okay. I mean, I got past my ASC interview uh, <laughs> when I got into ASC. I can get past this. That was harder than standing in front of everybody with tuxedos. And uh, I just had, I just tried to have fun with it. And I learned a lot from, you know who I learned a lot from is Downey, Mm. Robert Downey Jr. Yeah,
3: It's exercising different muscles for sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And Robert Downey Jr. has this uh, extremely um, poised and relaxed nature to how he socializes. And I love it. Like, he's just a master of... His composure. Yes. His composure is fucking phenomenal. And watching him and having had the pleasure of working with Robert Downey Jr., I just kept thinking about him and Jon Favreau and how at ease they are around people. So I, um, I just sort of channeled those two fuckers, you know. <laughs> well, well done. Well, it really showed you. You uh, you pulled it off well because it's like
3: that's a totally different that's a totally different thing. Getting up, especially you, uh, some might people might think it's harder to do it in front of their peers rather than a group of strangers to do that sort of thing. But you know, uh, but but good on you for uh, for, 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 for taking on. <laughs> well, the now responsibility that you said so. that, maybe
1: it'll be harder next oh, time no. No. I ever do it again. <laughs> I just got, you know, to be honest with you, I was like, I did it three years in a row and I was like, fuck man, I, I want to be nominated for something. I don't want to fucking keep doing this. So I just stopped. You know, I couldn't do it anymore. I didn't want to be the host. You know, I, I was thinking, I was like, uh, I don't know if you remember, you might be too young to know Paul Williams. He, Paul Williams was on like a, a show called The Hollywood Squares. He was oh, a, like yeah. the short guy with long blonde hair and yeah. glasses. I'm like, am I turning into Paul Williams? I <laughs> Fuck this. I'm not going to do this anymore.
3: Oh, I remember The Hollywood Squares. Oh, yes end match game and a bunch of other $64,000 right. pyramids, right. All, Back wasted youth I had there. Uh, okay. So I want to, I want to turn this over to you, man. You, you uh, what would you like to talk about? I mean, this is your interview. Uh, is there, is there something in anything in particular that you, uh, I'm not saying you have to get it off your chest, but I mean, you probably have one or two, uh, one or two thoughts about things or maybe the direction this, this industry is going, or I, I don't know. I'm going to, I'm going to, you can take a moment, and you know anything that's you want to a,
1: talk about. We'll. Uh, Those we'll a, I mean, a huge. I mean, I know I portion. know I give you
3: huge philo- philosophical stuff here, but you can. I mean,
1: I don't actually think about um, um the industry necessarily uh, because I guess because I'm in it. I mean, I'm I'm like most people. I'm just concerned about today. You know, I'm concerned about uh, politically how our world is, and I'm concerned about the future. I mean, I have kids. You know, I have kids that just started college, and I'm like looking at the world and going. And I'm sure that a lot, I'm sure that a lot of parents feel the same way, and I just, how am I actually helping, you know? And um, I guess it's just about, again, in these these forums too, you just sort of uh, express your concern about the um, sort of growth of uh, fascism and nationalism, and and as filmmakers, you know, I hope... uh, I really hope that we start making, we continue to make films that entertain, but I also feel like we should um, make films that sort of inform and um, encapsulate the time that we're living in, because this time will pass, like all times pass. You know, we we need to be conscious of it. So, uh, and socially, it's very difficult for me to watch for social media where everybody's celebrating themselves or we're fucking this and that, when we're living through a time where it's very critical that we should pay attention and punch into. Uh, what's happening around us so I hate to be a downer but you know that's what I really think about every day right now
3: you know what not, that's not being a downer that's just being real and, <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of people won't and I actually think that that is a wonderful place for us to leave uh, for us to leave it uh, I I have no problem ending on a minor key I think that's kind of like let's a, do it it's, it's, much, it's much cooler <laughs> yeah it is it's, it's totally that is the coolest that is the coolest way to do it uh, Maddie I know you're on the Twitters I know you're on the social medias I know you exist out there well, where can people find you if they want to follow you I mean they can watch your movies and stuff, but you your Twitter, right? You that's what you use.
1: I I am lately I haven't been on Twitter. Every once in a while I'll, I'll uh, respond to something on Twitter, but uh, I love Instagram. All right, Instagram. I love Instagram only because it's an image-based uh, social media thing.
3: And, and where, can, where can they come find you on Instagram?
1: It's at libatique. That's it. All right,
3: Matty, thank you so much for being on. It's the a show. pleasure.
1: I'm I'm glad I finally was able to be here. Yeah, me too. I right. appreciate it.
0: And now, short ends. So that was Maddie Lee Batik.
2: again for the 50th time. I can't tell you how jealous I am that you got to meet and sit down and talk to Maddie Lee Batik.
3: It, it was so much fun. And uh, I actually ran into him at the ASC Awards and said, hey, we'd love to have you on the show again. Would you like to come back again? And he said, absolutely, anytime. So next time, Ben, uh, you're up to bat.
2: Oh, wow. Yeah. I just got tingles. That'll be cool. <laughs> He'll be the first person we ever brought back. Yes. Assuming we
3: don't get someone to come back sooner than him. So we're looking up. at
2: you, Rodney Charters.
3: <laughs> yes, definitely. Rodney Charters.
2: All right. So, Ilya, it is short end time. It is. What is your short end? It's skateboards. Skateboards. But what does that have to do with cinematography? <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you right now. OK, uh, I was just giving you the softballist set up ever. Go for that, it.
3: That's pretty soft. OK, so two years ago, Kodak and the Girl Skateboard Company collaborated on a product line of skateboard decks and wheels that use the iconography of classic motion picture film stocks. Uh, so like the packaging and it's really only something that's cool to camera geeks. So like people are us. like
2: I got the 5248 skateboard. That's exactly right. Well really? it's actually there's a
3: 7266 and a 7293. Oh, well, clearly I was so, think
2: I was thinking 16 millimeter in a 35 millimeter world going. Well,
3: uh, well, no, or vice versa actually, but
2: 52? Oh yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah so, but uh, also Super 8. So there's a Super 8 skateboard deck. That's my and, skateboard deck. And they look really, really cool. Uh, they, they they, made an announcement back in 2017 that they were going to do this. And, of course, Spike Jones, a famous filmmaker and also a partner in the Girl Skateboard Company. I know he was really instrumental in, in all of this. And there's press releases and stuff you can find online. But it's now a little bit quaint because you can't find them anywhere anymore. Nowhere has them. And Except... You, that's right. Well, I was getting to that, except, oh, except. Okay. But uh, no one has them anymore, and some people just use them as art. Some people actually do ride them, but they've got, they've appreciated in value quite a bit over the years. And the one place that you can find all of the remaining stock in the United States, at least, maybe the world... Is hot rod cameras. We bought all of them. So wow. every single one of these decks, we put five of them up on the wall. We have one more left to, to put up. Do there.
2: you go out in the parking lot and uh, and shred? Do a quick grind. Grind. You know,
3: do a fifty fifty and ollie. Do, I, I, do you I, go
2: out there I, and glean the cube? <laughs> I 80s <laughs> movies references. I do
3: not gleam any cubes. I do not Tony Hawk anything. <laughs> I do not you know pro skateboarder this or that. I don't even Dogtown, and I've spent some time in Dogtown.
2: I don't even know what that means. Yeah, me neither. So <laughs> I, I I remember the period of my life when I had a skateboard. I was 12 years old, and none of my pants had knees, and none of my knees had skin.
3: That's right. Yeah, and and skateboards will do that to you. But these skateboards look awesome. They are a combination of Kodak film stock labels plus uh, girl skateboard iconography. And they have different colors on the back side or on the front side, so whichever side it is. that So there's sort of a customization. There's pink ones and green ones and blue ones and black ones and all, all kinds of stuff. But we have them all here. And, uh, yeah, if someone wants them, they just have to contact us. I don't even think they're on our website. You have to kind of, like, know. And so you call us, and, yeah, we'll sell you one of the remaining decks.
2: Oh, wow. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. People should do that. that. I mean, you know, we like to log roll here from time to time. I think that's a worthy cause right there. Yeah,
3: it's they're under 100 bucks. It's totally worth it.
2: Excellent. I don't skateboard, so I probably won't, but uh, I'll tell all my skateboarding friends to hit you up.
3: Or, you know, people who just happen to like skateboard art or have skateboards on their walls or who knows, wants to own a piece of history because they're never making these again. They're not coming back. This, This series is over and we've got what's left. All right. All right, Ben. So, what's uh, what's your short end this week?
2: So, my short end is as as is often a crime documentary. <laughs> Lord knows you don't like those. <laughs> it's on uh, it's on Amazon Prime, and it's mm-hmm. called Lorena. It is a four part documentary. Oh, I know about that. Oh yeah, <laughs> I th- I mean I think uh, it's it's been getting some press. Anyone who lived in the
3: eighties, basically nineties. Was it the nineties?
2: Nineteen ninety five, I think.
3: Oh crap. Okay, it seems like it might as well have been the eighties, but yes, you're right. It would have been the nineties. Yeah, mid nineties. It was a big story, Lorena Bobbitt.
2: Yeah, Lorena Bobbitt, but Here's 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 the thing. So it's a four part thing. It was uh directed by Joshua Rofe. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Mm -hmm. And it is shot by uh Ronan Killeen, Mm -hmm. who has shot like he shot O. J. Made in America, and he's he's shot some some really amazing uh documentaries. He shot Get Me Roger Stone, which is a documentary that made my liberal blood boil, literally (laughs) boiled. I got a fever, I had to go to the hospital. Oh my god. Um, no, uh, amazing, amazing cinematography. But like, I I sort of feel like we're in a cultural moment where we're kind of going back to the 90s where I think in the 90s we thought of ourselves as somewhat, uh, we didn't say woke, but we would have thought we were that way. And then you look at something like uh, Lorena and realize how retrograde uh, our gender politics were. And it kind of, it, it it's a necessary overwriting of the files of, you know, like Lorena Bobbitt became kind of a, a a punchline for a joke, you know, because she she uh, s- sorry, everybody, uh, you know, strap in. She cut off her husband's penis after he repeatedly raped her.
3: Yes. Uh, she was horribly, horribly abused by her husband. And then it was like, hey, go figure. What what you, what kind of revenge could she take upon him?
2: Yeah. And uh, I, it kind of reexamines it. It has modern interviews with her and John Wayne Bobbitt, the 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 man who's uh, weighing she cut off the end of uh it's uh it, it was i couldn't stop watching it and i have to say like there's a lot of documentaries that i see on uh, the streaming services that maybe don't need to be that many episodes long? I'm looking at you, making a murderer that co- that could have been half as many episodes, <laughs> we'll and it would have been sing. great. It's a, it's it's a great television, but after a while, it's like it just kind of becomes core TV for a few episodes. Mm. And I didn't need it to be as long as it was. Lorena is four episodes. Wow, and All it's right. uh, executive pro- executive produced by uh, by Jordan Peele, who oh. uh, is using his powers for good. Like you know, he has the hit with Get Out, and and now I I'm like so
3: excited. I'm so excited for Twilight Zone.
2: Twi- I can't. I, Twilight Zone is going to make me get a uh, CBS All Access.
3: And, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, it's like if almost anyone else had done it, I would have been like, oh, God, they're bringing back Twilight Zone. But Jordan Peele bringing it back. Jordan Peele doing it, it's like, oh, I'm super jazzed for this. It's- I'm
2: I'm in all the way. And, and the trailer for his new movie looks great. But it, it's interesting seeing the kind of stuff that he's getting behind, which I think is uh, I, there's a social consciousness to what he does. And he's able to meld it with something that's very entertaining because the Lorena documentary is also kind of edge of your seat, uh, really well designed documentary that's, uh, you know, like it's, it's revealing stuff that you didn't know at the time, things that you, you hadn't heard, modern interviews. I will say there's there's one one thing and I kept bringing it up with my wife and I don't understand it. One of the Bobbitt's neighbors is interviewed in his car. Everyone else is interviewed in like regular places and it's a beautiful shot in the car and it's like snowing, I think, outside the car and it looks great. But it's just like I was like, why is no why has nobody ever done like just a series of interviews about a documentary that has literally nothing to do with cars in people's cars? It's a weird environment to be in because he's just sitting behind the driver's seat talking to the camera or talking to the to the interviewer in a car. Super weird choice, but um, I, I'm I'm uh, I'm rolling with it if you get my lame pun. Um, but uh, but no, I, I I thought that overall, like it was it was a show that uh, my wife and I just uh, binge all the way right through.
3: Nice. All right. Well, we're changing up. We've changed up our format now, so we don't have a war story that we're doing. We skipped over that and we're right here, but we should talk about who's gonna what we're going to do for our next episode and our next episode. Actually, we're going to start diving into all of the amazing interviews and coverage from Sundance.
2: Oh, cool. Yeah. So you got to interview lots of people and I got to kind of uh, breeze in and out of Sundance like a stranger in the night.
3: And I might have a clip of you right now, actually, from Sundance. Oh,
2: well, here it goes. Uh, I kind of have have a thought that I think is important, is that Ed and Dan created uh, a situation that was sort of like these actors were in a (laughs) LARP and they were filming themselves in a LARP and then we were doing whatever we were doing and they didn't know what was happening. So when I talk to people about it a lot of times, I'm like, it actually is a documentary. And like all documentaries, it's omitting one convenient thing, and in this case, it was that they knew it was us messing with them all along. And they're actors, and they're putting performance into it, and they're doing all their real work, but like, it, I think the authenticity from it comes from the fact that it does feel like a real documentary, because they made it like you would make a real documentary. Yeah.
3: All right. So, hey, Ben, it sounds like you had a pretty good time. So that you, It was yeah.
2: awesome. But like I said on a previous episode, I literally was in Sundance for about a day. But I,
3: you got to self-promote. You got to go out there and show your face. You got to be like, you no, know. No, it was
2: great. I, you know, yeah. yeah reconnect. I, I, I'm uh, one of the lucky few people on earth who kind of got to go stand on the stage of the Egyptian theater and talk about a project that I'd worked on some 20-something years ago. 20 years ago. Amazing. <sighs>
3: <laughs> no, nothing like that to make you feel young.
2: I feel old as fuck.
3: <laughs> All right. So uh, next episode after, uh, next episode is going to start diving into Sundance.
2: Sweet. Okay. So, uh, uh, Ilya, who should we thank this week?
3: Let's thank our producer, Alana Cody.
2: Without whom none of this would be happening.
3: Let's thank our uh, composer, Kaze Alatrachi.
2: Kaze, uh, we love you. If somebody email Kays, go to www.musicbykaze, K-A-Y-S, dot com, and say, hey, Kays, like your music. You don't need it. And, and we heard it on the cinematography podcast.
3: Or don't like your music.
2: Oh, yeah hate but. your music <laughs> and i heard it on the cinematography podcast
3: <laughs> anything to to let Kays know you exist
2: hey um also a shout out to our fine editor
3: yes our editor ben Katz. uh and, and ben where can people find you
2: as always you can find me on twitter at neptune salad and uh do you tweet i i i tweet quite often and oh. i and i retweet yes no uh, tweeting is uh do you follow back I I tend to follow people back. And uh, let me read you my favorite tweet of my own from this week.
3: The CinePod podcast page on Instagram always follows back.
2: Uh, I I tend to follow back unless someone's weird. Ooh. Um,
3: (laughs) And you're the arbiter of what's weird.
2: As always. Yeah. Um, So, oh, God, I can't find it. Hold on. Uh, I, I tweet and retweet a whole whole lot that's my problem so um, so our son uh, Madden uh, we got him this uh, cell phone looking thing that has like little apps but they're each just buttons that play music so this is my hilarious tweet you ready strap in big comedy coming your way okay I'm strapped we got Madden this toy cell phone with apps that play sounds and songs when he presses them he loves everything about it except the entire U2 album that came pre-installed and there's a picture of my son holding the phone that it's a good good shout out to uh, 2014 when everyone who had iTunes had to get a free U2 album they didn't want. I just explained my joke. It's poison. Mm-hmm. It's comedy poison.
3: Yes. And of course like 75% of people who are not Apple people maybe don't have any knowledge of this uh,
2: you know Twitter Twitter doesn't have to I'm not trying to be everything to everyone <laughs> baby I, 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 I can handle I'm also going to
3: recommend the overheard LA Twitter account that's a good one to follow
2: Uh, you know my favorite my favorite uh, novelty uh, Twitter feed is definitely nihilist Arby's and I went so far as to buy their t-shirt <laughs> <Nihilist Arby's. laughs> yeah, yeah here I'll, I'll read you a nihilist Arby's tweet
3: <laughs> okay well, aren't you going to ask me where, where people can find me or it's yeah, just going to
2: well, be nihilist Arby's we'll, now, we'll get there so. real quick I, I, I'll, I'm just going to read the, the most current nihilist Arby's in honor of President's Day just bring your kids to any Arby's and we'll put them in a cage no questions asked enjoy Arby's (laughs) hours hours of horrible nihilist fun on on nihilist Arby's and again I I've never done this before but I bought the t-shirt from a Twitter feed Uh, and 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 also uh, one last thing about Twitter uh, bonus points to anyone who can figure out what my fake uh, novelty Twitter feed is um, which uh, Ooh, a challenge uh, yeah yeah it's a big challenge anyone listening to this I have a fake novelty Twitter feed that is not me mm. and it is also not Nihilist Arby's <laughs> and uh, I, if you can figure it out Ilya
3: uh, will no, have to look at your retweets right? that's, all that's not
2: true because I retweet all kinds of stuff so if you can figure out what it is Ilya will uh, give you a free Hot Rod Cameras t-shirt I don't have any T-shirts. It'll be a hat. <laughs> Ilya will give you if you can figure it out. Ilya will give you a free Hot Rod Cameras hat. So, Ilya, where can people find you?
3: They can find me over here at Hot Rod Cameras, and uh, like
2: in the actual building, in
3: the building at Hot Rod Cameras. At least Monday through Friday. That's typically where I'm at. Cool. So just, just
2: come over and just yeah, walk or, up.
3: Or they can they can go to like you know Instagram at sign Hot Rod Cameras or Twitter at Hot Rod Cameras. Uh, you know any of those at and Hot Rod Cameras. But if they
2: show up here and demand a hat, will you give them a hat?
3: Yeah. At least for at least for a period of time, so, if we get a huge run on hats, and we have no hats left. So, I, if podcast
2: I, I, listeners, if you're in if you're in Burbank, you're in Burbank and, and, and you want a free Hot Rod Cameras hat,
3: yeah, until let's say the end of March of 2019, just show
2: up, ask for Ilya, demand your hat, demand a hat, walk yeah. right out the door.
3: <laughs> you don't have to do anything else yeah, n- but if you No
2: more sun in your eyes ever again. Y- you
3: know what's going to happen though? Johnny Durango is going to come in every day and ask for a hat.
2: I don't blame him. I mean, Johnny Durango, he, he needs a lot of hats.
3: He he's here all the time anyway. Is he? I'll, but yeah, he, well, relatively so that's cool yeah so now there's a little easter egg we'll find out Giant Durango is actually listening to the end of every show
2: yes yes Johnny the the <laughs> gauntlet is thrown so thank you very much if you're still listening to us ramble and uh, we'll see you at the next episode of the cinematography podcast